Research Pages, a podcast all about supporting academic research. I'm Neve Page, a librarian at the University of Cambridge. And I'm Andrew Page, a computer scientist from the Quadrum Institute. We are both information professionals supporting research, but coming from very different angles. We hope you enjoy listening. So this time we're going to talk about what an information professional is and why it makes sense to have them involved in research. First, let's get rid of the stereotypes. Most people seem to think librarianships about books and look confused when I tell them I don't work with print materials at all. Yeah, when I think librarian, I think hair in a bun, glasses, grey skirt, and always with your nose in a book. Just like computer scientists are locked away in the basement, staring at their screen and incapable of talking to anyone face to face. Yeah, absolutely. That's very right. But actually, it's quite different in reality. We're in a big open plan office and we have a, a lot of interaction and we're always working with people. And it's very people orientated because that's the only way that you can actually work in information. And I would say the same about librarianship. The point is not the books. Books do exist and are important, but that's just a container of information. The important thing is how we connect people with the information they need. So Neve, what is an information professional? I think it's anyone for whom the focus of their job is working with information. So librarians, our job is to manage information, to be able to work with it, share it, teach other people how to be effective in their use of information. What about you? Well, to be honest, I feel a bit um, like you're trying to take over my area because I'm an informational IT professional and it seems like you're trying to steal my title. <laughs> so I, I think IT is different to information. So IT is the technology to do with working with the information. It's all about being able to manage the technology. Whereas yeah, what we do is manage I, the information. I do everything to do with information, you know. <laughs> I make databases, I create code, I munge data, I search databases. So I don't think it's about takeover. I think it's a spectrum. And I think that there are librarians who are far more on the technical side. And I think there are IT professionals and computer scientists that are far more on the user design side. It's it's a spectrum. So I work a lot with data scientists who spend a lot of their day taking huge databases in bioinformatics and then searching for little bits of information, which sounds kind of like what librarians do as well. It does. Isn't it funny how many computing things refer to libraries as well? I hear librarians were innovators in in many respects in the early days. Yeah, they were. They were. I don't actually know why they got elbowed out, but it seems like they did over time. Or maybe they just discovered they could earn more money elsewhere. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) So, Neve, you tell me that there's a lot of information professionals, but they're not working in libraries. So where are they all and what do they do? One of the things I love about one of the professional associations I'm involved with, the Special Libraries Association, is that it has a disproportionate number of these people that are working in places that nobody had any idea there were library and information professionals. So through that association, I've met people that work in Boeing and Rolls-Royce and Disney and Nike, all sorts of different roles, um, as well as people that work for government information, the military, all sorts of different areas. That's quite a diverse set of people. Yeah. and uh, but, but the point is that information is everywhere and you need the people with the skills to work effectively with information everywhere. I guess when I'm hiring, uh, say, people who are data scientists or bioinformaticians, I cast a very wide net, you know, mm. looking at mathematicians, physicists, uh, chemists, just a whole range of people because... If you just limit yourself to one type of person with one worldview, you get into this silo effect. 
do you find I, on the librarianship? I think that's absolutely true. One of the debates that has been going on for years is this business of whether you have to have a master's in librarianship to be a librarian. And it is a graduate profession. Lots of people are surprised by that because they don't know what we do. But I don't think that it has to be a master's in librarianship necessarily that people have. I think you need to be educated to that higher level. But qualifications in um, business management and educational technology and all sorts of other fields, publishing certainly, are just as relevant to librarianship. I think the challenge can be if a role requires an understanding of how to actually run a library, then for those people, it's very helpful to have a qualification that's in librarianship specifically. But for lots of the wider information professions, I think there are lots of what I would call librarians out there that don't have the word library in their title and would never define themselves as that, don't have a qualification in that, but they're in knowledge management or competitive intelligence or market research. These are all skills. These are all professions that rely on managing information. And I would say that the librarianship type skills fit really well within that. That sounds really interesting. So how do we say in a research group, get librarianship type skills or information professional skills into our group? So there are a few different ways. One is if your organisation has a library, you can go have a chat with people there, find out what their skills are and in what ways they can help you. Maybe those teams tend to not have enough people to do large volumes, but they can certainly help upskill everyone to make sure. Well, like literature searching is the obvious one. We have much more in-depth knowledge of the resources available usually. Surely all academics know how to do literature search. It's like 101 academia. You'd be surprised. Well, I know how <laughs> I do literature searching and uh, you probably kill me for that. <laughs> I would never do a thing like that. Um, I think that so much of academia is done by somebody who's survived the system teaching someone else and lots of them do it very, very well. Some of them don't have time to take their students through the process of literature searching, don't necessarily remember a time when they couldn't do it themselves. And actually their their focus is on the subject area. And let's face it, librarians are cheaper than academics, so you might as well make use of the professionals whose, whose entire job it is to manage information. That's true. And I suppose with, when it comes to literature searching, you do see quite different types of searches. So if you read papers in medicine, Absolutely. So in medicine, there's this emphasis on evidence-based practice, which is absolutely critical when you're trying to heal somebody, that you're doing it based on fundamentally strong information. And so in that field, I think more than any other, librarians have been able to partner with clinicians and researchers to do very, very systematic reviews of the literature to find as accurate information as possible. But wouldn't every field want that level of information accuracy? I think so, yeah. It sounds like Google on crack. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of t-shirts about with that librarian, the original search engine. Yeah, I suppose one of the big problems is there's a huge tidal wave of research because so or research publications because so much money is being pumped into certain fields and it's just an absolute explosion, particularly in biology and, and medical research. There's just an insane, nearly limitless supply of funding coming in or internationally. And of course, you get an explosion as well in the number of journals, 
and spam journals and all this other paraphernalia around it. But then trying to decide what is a really good paper and what is a bad paper is just so difficult and you can't just go by the impact factor anymore. Yeah, so again, this is exactly the sort of thing librarians can help with. One of the things that we focus on is critical appraisal skills, also known as spotting fake news using modern parlance. Um, And it's great, in fact, that loads of institutions are starting to sign DORA, which is the San Francisco Declaration of Research Assessment. Not the Explorer. Not the Explorer, no. Um, (laughs) But DORA requires that institutions commit to no longer using journal impact factors and journal level metrics as a shorthand for the quality of research. They're expected to actually care about the quality of the article that was written. You mean actually read the papers? Yeah, actually read the papers. God, that's hard. <laughs> well, the thing is that no matter how good, how good in inverted commas the journal is, things slip through the net. So a classic example that we often use is the Wakefield paper, which proved supposedly the link between the MMR vaccine and autism. And it was extremely highly cited. It was in The Lancet. It was by somebody that on paper seemed like a a legitimate, reputable type person. But it was cited so highly because so many other papers were disproving his points and his methods were fundamentally flawed. And eventually the paper was withdrawn. So that sounds like a recent controversy over the placenta microbiome, which has been totally and utterly destroyed by another recent paper from Cambridge. But that uh, has 1,200 citations, which mm-hmm. is, is quite insane. So this is why it's really important to look at the actual, not just not just at the paper, not just at the container, but looking at the paper, looking at who cites it, looking at what they're saying about it, and not assuming that a high number means good quality, because it might mean good quality, or it might mean controversy. So how do I hire an information professional because I know that I can hire a mathematician by saying I need a mathematician but actually that can be quite difficult. I suppose it depends what you're looking for. I think there's really obvious channels for librarianship especially if you're looking for the traditional library skills like literature searching and information management. Um, We have the Chartered Institute of Library and Information Professionals here. There's lots of mailing lists. There's quite a strong network. I've mentioned SLA as well, Special Libraries Association, which is great if you're targeting a specific discipline because they have really strong fields. So librarians are really good at networking and collaborating, so it's quite easy to reach out to them. So how do you do it in bioinformatics? How do I hire? That can be quite difficult because there's a very small pool of people. It's very competitive. The area has rapidly expanded over the past few years. So it can be difficult and you have to look at a wider field and consider different uh, areas because bioinformatics didn't really exist 20 years ago. So a lot of people have come in from different domains and courses weren't necessarily set up. So it's only a relatively new thing that you can go and do a degree or master's in bioinformatics. But I I really like Twitter for advertising jobs. It seems to get a very wide reach. So when you do get someone, do you do a technical test? It depends on the role. We do try to do some kind of test and what that test would be will depend on the role. So often for a senior level post that's expected to engage directly with academics or to deliver teaching sessions to PhD students, 
we would do something that tests their presentation skills as well as their knowledge of the subject area. Um, an example was uh, a few years ago, I had an interview at which I asked people to talk about, talk as if they were talking to a committee about why they should allow research skills to be taught to their postgraduate students. So I'm going to be interviewing on Thursday. And for that, the candidates already know this, so I'm not giving anything away. But we've asked the candidates to write a plan for how they would approach a workshop, how they would facilitate a workshop for researchers from a number of different institutions. And then when they come to the interview, we'll be asking them about their plan, how they would approach it, and and follow on questions will come from that. So when it comes to data itself, I mean, I know that I have um, seen many different data management plans, but is there any way that a an information professional can help with that and actually implementing it? Yeah, I think so. So first of all, in developing the plan itself, one of the things that my teams have always aimed to do is to be aware of what the funders actually require. And I think that's a real challenge for researchers, actually. When they sign a grant, they often get reams of paperwork that they read, and they do read it, and they're as diligent as they can. But there's just so much in there that they don't always catch every aspect. Do they very much between funders? Uh, Yeah, they do vary between funders. And sometimes I've, I've known researchers who attended all the briefings about open access requirements, for example, which is all about making sure that the papers are available so the public can read it without having to pay anything. So a particular researcher was very well up on the requirements for open access but hadn't realised that the grant he had signed meant that he was actually meant to apply it in practice. That's a bit of a problem, isn't it? But do the grant uh, funders give you any extra money, say, to make it open access, or is it just expected to be part of the grant? So originally, I think people were paying it from the grant, and then some of the funders started giving block grants to the institutions. So at the moment, our institution does pay for the open access charges, But a challenge that's going to be coming in the not too distant future is what happens when those block grants stop and the publishers are used to getting very, very big payouts through subscriptions, plus the payouts on article processing charges. And they're going to expect us to pay the the larger amount of money, but we don't actually have a larger pot. The research councils have been giving us a bit of extra money until now. So the other thing that's been really topical in recent years is reproducibility and there's talk of a crisis in that field. And I know that's something you're really interested in. Absolutely. Yeah, I publish a few times in a journal called Microbial Genomics, and it's very much about open data, open reproducible science. And that's quite hard to do, actually. They have a data bibliography, for example, where you have to list out every the accession numbers of every single piece of data you have, and everything has to be there, all the code, and it's a requirement for the reviewers to double-check all of that as well, mm-hmm. which is fantastic, actually, because a lot of journals just ignore that. Or you, you read a paper, and then you find, you know, contact the authors for the data, but of course, no one's ever going to do that, you know? Well, so, sometimes they do. You were contacted once asking you for data from a from your PhD about 10 years previously. I was, yeah. And I know I've contacted people before and asked them for their source code. And it's been, you know, it's gone around editorial boards and everything. And it's come back, no, sorry. There's this kind of edge case which allows them to get out. But mm. actually, if we can't reproduce a scientific result independently, 
then that's a big problem. You know, it, is it a waste of money? Is it fraud? Or is it just genuinely they haven't done a very good job? Mm. Reproducibility is very important because when things like software versions change, that's the underlying um, environment for your research. And if you can't then get the same results a year later, then is it a real result or is it not? And particularly for borderline signals, that can be a big problem. Or maybe the big result you published is just an error. So how do you address that? Do you have to basically create a virtual platform that you can store alongside your data? That seems very hefty in terms of storage requirements. Well, step one is making sure your actual underlying raw data, the unedited, unmodified data is publicly available or it's in in an archive that you don't run because you might move to university. So in my field, it's the European Nucleotide Archive or there's an equivalent in the US as well and Japan. But that's very important so that people can actually get hold of your data. And then if it's a real signal, a real result, they should be able to reproduce what you found using a different method or a different piece of software. If it's not real, it's probably not going to turn up. But some of the fields I've supported, especially in engineering, generate such enormous quantities of data that storing all the raw data would never happen. So what would you do if you were trying to support a group like that? I guess... In bioinformatics, we don't store the raw, raw data as it comes off the instrument. Um, so with short read sequencing, the real original data is photographs. And then that gets translated into signals, which get translated into a, a proprietary format. And then eventually gets translated into your A, C, Gs and Ts in a, in a format called FASTQ or CRAM. And... That's what we regard as the raw data, but you're right, there is a few little intermediate steps as it comes off the instrument because we could not store the actual raw unprocessed information. Mm. But it's that, uh, I suppose, first step in the journey that we store and then move on from there. Mm-hmm. How much risk is there of things coming in in, that, in those few steps before the version that you store? Well, for many years, they stored everything. And it was only when they got confident that what they were doing was correct that they uh, loosened the st- the, uh, the strings. Now, it is still a problem because with newer technologies like uh, from Oxford Nanopore, third generation sequencing, we do find that we have to store the very original signal data because we're finding that you come back a year later, you run a different piece of software over it and you get different results. So mm. it's... It evolves over time and people become more confident in in what you can store. But this is very important. And the most basic things for reproducibility in my field are having the name of the software that you used and the version number and the steps that you took along the way. You know, that's very easy stuff to put into a paper, into your method section, but it's missing so often. Yeah. So do you ever wonder by your team, so you, you manage a team of bioinformaticians, do you ever wonder if the existence of your team mean is 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 doing a disservice to research by meaning that a research group needs one fewer postdoc? I suppose for me, a postdoc is a training position, and it's something you do for a few years after you do your PhD before you move on to a different role. And really, my team of competitions are professionals, information professionals, and data scientists who've decided that this is a career they want and they specialize in it. So they get very, very good at it. And a really good person can do, you know, maybe 
something in a fraction of the time, maybe one tenth of the time of maybe postdoc is just learning and training. So you do get huge savings by having professionals and using the right tool for the right job. I completely agree with that. So we have a program called the Embedded Librarian Program where we employ library professionals to work within research groups. And the idea again is just as you say, you have the expertise right there in the middle of the team. They're able to upskill everyone around them because they have this expertise in how you find, manage, work with, communicate information. They're able to share those skills with the other people around them. We find researchers, their first port of call is often ask another person. And if another person happens to be a librarian that's sitting at the next desk to them, they discover suddenly all the other skills that librarians have. So we had one particular person who did such a fantastic job in a research group that when she came back to the main team, library team, the research group members would think, I know, that person will know the answer. They come looking for her to ask the question. And if they weren't there, they were just as happy to ask other people because they had discovered that librarians have this knowledge. Beforehand, half of them would never, ever have thought to come to the library for that support. That's awesome. And I think librarians and information professionals are extremely valuable in research groups. So we should all have one. We could talk about this all night, but let's leave it there. Thank you for listening to Research Pages. Please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. The views expressed in this podcast are our own opinions and do not represent the views of the University of Cambridge or the Quadrum Institute.